We all feel it, from rising violence in the streets to the ideological skewing of every movie and TV show. The implicit beliefs of our society have changed. In fact, woke dogma has overtaken our culture so deeply that Boomer Media tried to release a reality show called The Activist, in which groups would compete in making sacrifices to the new gods in hopes of getting a pat on the head from some corporate-approved celebrities. So brave. Despite how transparently fake and even humorous corporate wokeness may be, at the heart of the new religion lies something much darker. Under the mask of social change lies the return of a pre-Christian value system, a return of the scapegoat. You can see this in multiple places, but there is this sense that a sort of um, pseudo-paganism is is rising again, you know. And there is definitely, I, I saw it, I see it a lot with college students who are real into you know, these sort of Eastern um, pagan ideas, you know what I mean? It's a little bit hard to nail down, but sort of the rise of Burning Man, if you will, that that kind of thing, that we know that materialism is a lie. We're starting to know that that is not enough, that, you know, materialism is a box that the world can't fit in, the idea that everything is just meaningless matter. Um, you know, you can't live that, and you want to kill yourself. So we know that ain't it, but we also know that Christianity... Uh, wants you to, you know, kind of curtail your desire for evil, and no one wants to do that. So we've got to find something that is more suitable to our uh, to our vices. And so, you know, so we all do that in, in various ways. You know, I'm, I'm certainly not immune to that either. We all have that desire. It's just the desire of evil. But, um, but we see a sort of um, new version of paganism kind of on the rise again. Um, hold on, I'm going to take my jacket off. I'm not going to edit this at all. <laughs> I'm sweating. Phew. Okay, this is where we enter René Girard. René Girard is an old dead French guy. He died uh, a handful of years ago. And he is really key to taking down the woke uh, heresy and restoring Christianity to its rightful place. Enter René Girard. I heard him mentioned somewhere, and the more I looked into his work, the more I became convinced that he is key to understanding today. Girard was a French polymath who wrote several books on the history of human violence and how Christ forever overturned it. At times, I find him hard to understand, but I'm going to break down his major ideas to the best of my ability. A staple of Girard's work is mimetic desire. The idea is that, as humans, we want what other people want. It's like the guy or girl who wasn't interested in you until someone else was. It's not a bad thing, it's just a thing. As Gerard points out, if we weren't imitative, we'd have no ability or use for things as basic as language. You know, that primary to us as humans is the fact that we are imitative. If we weren't this way, we'd be pre-programmed robots. The fact that we imitate is beautiful, but it is also corruptible. Mimetic desire is what lowers us below the animals and what elevates us above them. Part of our misunderstanding, he writes, is our dismissal of the Tenth Commandment. We often view it like, don't murder, don't steal, and oh yeah, don't covet your neighbor's car. Be grateful for your car. His view, however, is that after forbidding immediate violence, thou shalt not murder. The Tenth Commandment speaks to the heart of all human violence, which is corrupt desire. As we begin, and this is an interesting thing he pointed out about the structure of the Ten Commandments, kind of that it starts with more immediate um, rebuking of evil, you know, such as thou shalt not murder, and then at the end, 
it goes to a more long-term solution, which is to repent of corrupt desire uh, as such, you know, that corrupt desire is what underlies all the other things it just, you know, it just told you not to do. So, um, you know, rape and uh, theft and, you know, violence. As we begin, so this is his explanation of really the heart of human violence throughout all of time. As we begin to imitate the same models, or we war over which models to imitate, tension builds. We are now in competition. Satan then turns this tension into resentment. This is a quote from the book, and this is the kind of thing that I'll think about for like a year straight. The more desperately we seek to worship ourselves and be good individualists, the more compelled we are to worship our rivals in a cult that turns to hatred. The more that we see ourselves as little gods, you know, that we start doing that to other people too, even if we don't aren't conscious of it. And then that turns to hatred because neither us nor them fulfill our desires. You know, it's kind of the don't meet your heroes thing because you have a picture, a sort of mythical picture of who they are and what their life must be like that cannot be met once you really meet them because they are not the mythical, uh, you know, they are not the archetype that they represent in your head. The conflict from this double idolatry of self and other is the principal source of human violence. You think about today's world in the way that we all pretend that we get to make up right and wrong and that, you know, you don't have to be male just because you were born that way. You don't have to be female because you're born that way. Reality is nothing except what you decide it to be. That It's interesting that that would coincide with the fact that everyone calls each other queen and king and I'm the queen of this and you're the queen of that and slay queen. It's not a coincidence. It's an idolatry of self and as a result an idolatry of each other both which lead to utter hopelessness because we can't fulfill our desires and neither can they. The role of Satan is to continually welcome us to justify our resentment. As the community's collective, now this is clutch right here, and this was so eye-opening. When the, As the community's collective resentment continues to build, each individual resentment is dissolved into one shared unstoppable rage. This rage continues to build until the need for release becomes so great that the mob decides on a victim and exercises its demons on the scapegoat. This restores peace temporarily to the community. And this is a real key idea of Gerard's writing, is that before Christ, the way that violence was solved and peace was brought to communities is that two groups would get pissed off at each other and then they would both take it out on a third person. And that that would work for a while. For a while, the two groups would both have peace because they would have released their anger on the third person. And that after Christ, after Scripture, that that was forever different. That through the Bible, that was subverted. And that Christ's life and death and resurrection changed that forever in a way that it never had been changed, even just from a um, study of human nature, a study of human violence, that Christ's life and death was a subversion of that mechanism. Satan casts himself out and in so doing becomes the solution to the problem he set into motion. So Satan would encourage and does encourage all of our resentments against each other. Then he tells both of us that we should take it out on a third person. So we take it out on the third person, 
and we both feel better. So Satan becomes the solution to the problem that he set into motion. It's another quote from the book. If he were purely a destroyer, Satan would have lost his power a long time ago. To understand why he is the master of all the kingdoms of this world, we must we must take Jesus at his word, that disorder expels disorder, or in other words, that Satan really expels Satan. So when two groups get pissed off and they lynch a third person who has nothing to do with it, they are. it is the role of Satan who is casting himself out so that the peace which comes afterwards can justify the empire of Satan and the thing can start over and over again. And that that was prior to Christ was the story of human nature. By executing this extraordinary feat, he has been able to make himself indispensable, and his power remains great. Let's look at the betrayal of Peter. Today we often depict Peter as failing by result of his temperament or character. Gerard's view is that this is false. The point is not that Peter is weak, you know, the idea or the story that Peter uh, betrayed Jesus. We often depict it like he was just a coward and that that's a total lie. What we're doing really when we do that is we're, um, we are relieving ourselves of what we would be like in that situation. Gerard's view is that it's not that Peter was weak. It's that the pull of the mob is absolute. And he went into a lot of detail about how Pilate and, I can't remember, the, the guy who basically killed John the Baptist and the guy who uh, agreed to kill Christ, even though both of the leaders, they were both political leaders, and they both didn't want to do it. They both knew that it was wrong, but they both went along with it because the mob wanted it. Christ's life, death, and resurrection is the beginning of the end for morally justifying the scapegoat mechanism. Prior to him, all our eyes were scaled. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. This is another really interesting point, that we take that verse of Christ dying on the cross saying, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, as this sort of beautiful, poetic thing. And it is that. But his point was that he takes it a bit more literally, that prior to Christ, this is how peace was gotten. That when Christ entered the picture, he stirred the pot between the Jewish people and the Romans. And so, or, or whoever the, you know, the other political uh, powers of the time were. I'm not, you know, not a historian. I uh, can't remember exactly. But the point was there were two groups which were finally at peace. And when Christ came, they basically there was a Jewish civil war. He basically pissed off both groups because he didn't fit in either camp. And that prior to Christ, the way that violence was, or sorry, the way that peace was always found was in lynching the person, a third person, lynching a third party. And so both of the two warring groups go back to being at peace. So when he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, he may be speaking quite literally that this is how, uh, this is how problems were solved prior to the Christ Christian revolution. So in that way, they quite literally might not know what they're doing. The, the idea that you repent of your resentment rather than take it out on someone else is in many ways a post-Christ point of view. Another key insight of Gerard's work is his handling of myths. Now this is really interesting because, you know, I grew up in a in a, you know, Christian home and a Christian community very much so, and there was a lot of sort of fundamentalism and a lot of goodness too. So a lot of great people that just kind of were very simplistic 
And so you didn't bring up hard questions. You didn't really look into things because if you did, the people, you know, you just, there was sort of a fear around exploration of ideas. And uh, these are great people, so I'm not throwing them under the bus. They found something that they believed worked, and they stick with it. And I understand the simplicity of that, and, and yeah, I have some respect for it. But, uh, but for me, that, that caused a lot of pain. So they, I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm on the other end. I want everything to fit, and I want every stone overturned. So this is, uh, he's going to get into something here about the, the role of Christianity and myths. You know, people that aren't Christians dismiss Christianity because of how similar some of the stories are. So that's where we're going on this piece, and I, I promise all of this fits together. Another key insight of Gerard's work is his handling of myths. First, he points out that myths, dis- myths disguise real violence. In our age, historians dissect specifics of myths and pronounce that they never happened. But in Gerard's view, these stories serve as a code of morality. So whether character A physically killed character B is not the point. The point is that the myth provides a moral frame- framework for everyone in the culture which adheres to it. As a result, myths are not merely fanciful stories that cultures told themselves for amusement. They reveal and justify that culture's attitude towards violence. Scripture and myth. Skeptics dismiss the Bible by citing the similarities between it and myths throughout history. For example, a hero who dies and rises again. Believers often dismiss myth as anti-Christian. They are quite right, but as always, avoidance is not the answer. Gerard's view is that the similarities between myth and Christianity serve to accentuate the differences. My wife and your wife are biologically more alike than they are different. It's the differences that count. Here are a few examples. In the story of Apollonius of Tyana, a community found itself in a state of social unrest which no one knew how to solve. Then along came Apollonius, who suggested that the source of all their woes is a beggar that they find in the street. It took some convincing, but eventually the crowd buys in and they murder him in cold blood. Now let's look at John 8. In John 8, a woman is caught in adultery and the Pharisees suggest that she be stoned. Rather than restore peace through a scapegoat, Jesus subverts the cycle of scapegoating by saying, He who is without sin cast the first stone. A similar thing happens between the story of Oedipus and the biblical story of Joseph. Despite their similarities, what's different is the point of view. In the story of Oedipus, and myths generally, the scapegoat is guilty of the thing the mob accuses him or her of. However, in the story of Joseph, the Bible reveals that just because the mob all agree on something does not make it so. Might does not make right. One one more way that scripture subverted the justification of violence throughout history. Here's a quote from the book. The myth and the biblical story are in basic opposition over the decisive question that collective violence poses. Is it warranted? Is it legitimate? In the myth, the expulsions are justified each time. In the biblical account, they never are. And this is just a really uh, big idea that has stuck with me that there's a lot of similarities between different myths throughout history and Christian stories, Christian, uh, you know, stories that are in the Bible. But that the difference is where the writer is standing, that the point of view is different. That in Oedipus, Oedipus really is guilty of everything the mob 
you know, says he's guilty of. But that in the story of Joseph, although the story of Joseph is structurally very similar to Oedipus, the Bible reveals that the violence and the, you know, the way that he is treated is not his fault. And so he puts the guilt on all the people in the mob who individually gave in to their individual resentment towards him. This brings us to today. Much like the movements throughout history, the rising tide in our culture today is the justification of resentment. The goal of the new religion is to convince us that if a resentment is understandable, it must be justified. For so long we have enjoyed the benefits of living in a post-Christ world that we are beginning to believe that we no longer need him. Leftism intentionally pretends that the moral values which resulted from a Christian framework are merely natural to human nature. This is that thing where you know how like college students all think that capitalism is unnecessary and arbitrary and you know and unfair because the real reason they believe that is because all their bills are being paid for by their parents. You know, they drive a car that their parents bought them and they're having four years of uh, you know, binge drinking that their parents, either their parents will pay for or a future version of them will pay for. So as a result, you know, oh, all that market stuff, all that capitalism stuff, that's all too dirty for me. I'm, I'm enlightened past the point of capitalism, past even work. Who even needs that? Just give everyone what they want and everything will be happy. Because they don't exist in the real world, they don't understand the importance of the way the real world works. Likewise, this is happening morally. Leftism pretends that the values which we have as a culture which is deeply marinated in Christianity for you know, hundreds and thousands of years, oh, that, that all comes easy, as if that's the way human nature is and always has been, which is false. The reason for this is that it facilitates our need to feel superior. If our concern for victims, which, by the way, As Gerard points out, I didn't go into it for sake of brevity, but he points out that it is exclusively Christian, the idea that people who are marginal, people that are, uh, you know, mistreated or people that are disabled should be treated wonderfully. That that is exclusively really a post-Christian revolution in the way that humans act. Back to to the writing. This is because it facilitates our need to feel superior. After all, if concern for victims, as I define it in my own head, is nothing more than natural, then it's only right to see those who transgress it, as I define it in my own head, as less than human. Not only are we superior to our neighbor, but when you take it to its logical conclusion, we begin to believe that we are superior to God himself. You can see this in progressive Christianity, which is really not Christianity at all. It's self-divination, which is using Christianity for some semblance of justification. Free from original sin, we become free to indulge our deepest and most satanic desire of all, self-divination. In short, wokeism takes Nietzsche for babies and Christianity for babies and mixes them together. It denounces forgiveness as weakness, while demanding its every self-definition be praised. It trades the sinfulness of all for the sinfulness of some. It trades the truth for power. It trades for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For I am innocent, you are guilty. I am oppressed, you 
are privileged. It weaponizes Christian self-reflection and uses it to turn its enemies against themselves. These two philosophies are incompatible and their marriage will not hold. Our culture will either become more Christian or more Nietzschean. You cannot have both resentment and stability. The more we indulge our desire to create our own morality, the more we will eventually find that the only thing we can agree on is using power against people we do not like. Should we give up our responsibility to preserve the rights of our opponents? Should we forego our commitment to the belief that law is above power? Then it will not be long before each of us find our heads on the chopping block. Christianity asserts that law is above power. Remove that and power is all that's left. Peter Hitchens